me take a guess here that you might be interested in redesigning your environment, your physical environment, your emotional environment to pull you toward the future that you want rather than stay stuck wherever you are or in some story that you've told yourself. If that's the case, this episode is going to help you a lot. I sit down today with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. He is an organizational psychologist, uh, best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work, which I thought was a fascinating book. Um, first tuned me into uh, Dr. Ben's work. His blogs have been read by over 100 million people, featured on Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, Cheddar, Big Think, and lots of others. He's also a regular contributor to Inc. and Psychology Today. And for at some point when I, again, tuned into his work, he was the number one writer in the world on medium.com where I go to get a lot of uh, what I feel like are really well done essays. And Ben was critical to that. Um, to, that was a really an important part of uh, where I tuned into his work and where he developed a really significant audience that have uh, thrust his books, um, both Willpower Doesn't Work and his new one which we talk about today, calling Personality Isn't Permanent. Um, just really, really interesting conversation today around the popular misconception that the role that personality plays, someone's attitudes and behaviors um, in our our daily life and in our future. There's a historical version of this, this narrative that is, you know, your personality is fixed and you you sort of uh, discover who you are, but Dr. Ben Hardy's science and this book that we're talking about today shows how this is false and how instead that our personalities, the way we approach day-to-day -day life is intentionally created. And of course, that really resonates deeply with me believing that creativity is a source of damn near everything in our lives. Um, we cover a ton of ground though. We cover things like why personality tests, tests and this idea of a, a fixed personality, why it's so toxic and destructive um, and what you can do to get out of that belief and the science behind uh, your ability to create it. Uh, we talk about why we shouldn't be the former anything, why we shouldn't linger on the past because defining yourself by even past successes is just as damaging to your growth as being haunted by some catastrophic failure in your past. Um, we talk about how to specifically design an identity based on who you want to be based on your future self and how to reframe trauma. Uh, it's no secret that we all, every single person who's listening to this right now has some trauma in their life, whether it was trauma with a capital T um, things like abuse or uh, other horrible experiences or something small like uh, like the thing that our teacher said to us when we were in the second grade that may have stuck with us. Um, it's it's uh, fascinating to understand and our ability to reframe this trauma into a narrative for supporting our future. So if any of this is interesting to you and you know what a buff I am on mindset, that's one of the reasons I know you're going to get so much value out of this. Um, so I'm going to get out of the way and welcome Dr. Ben Hardy to the conversation. Um, we're going to learn a lot over the course of the next 60 minutes. So I'm going to get out of the way. But before I do, just a super quick word from Creative Live. And then we're sitting down with Dr. Ben Hardy. 
Hey, quick question for you before we get into the episode. Do you feel stuck by any chance? Do you feel like your dreams are are a bit out of reach or you've got more potential with this one precious life than you're realizing today, right this moment? Well, you know what? I got an idea. Life isn't about finding fulfillment and success. It's about creating it. So to that end, I wrote a book. It's a new book. It just dropped in September. It's called Creative Calling, and it became an instant bestseller when it was released this past September. Now, if you dig this podcast, then this book is the perfect, and I mean perfect, companion because it takes the ideas we discuss here on the show, creativity, entrepreneurship, how to pursue your dreams and career, hobby, and in life, and it organizes them in a super clever and incredibly practical way that will help you take action. Richard Branson said, if you want to focus on creating amazing experiences, businesses, and relationships, then Chase's book, Creative Calling, is the engaging guide to doing just that. Brene Brown said, Chase's experiences and his commitment to creating make him the perfect guide as we set out on our own adventures to learn how creativity has the power to change everything. Now, those reviews are just the tip of the iceberg, and if you want, you can read a couple hundred more five-star reviews on Amazon. But again, this is not just about buying the book. It's not a transaction. This is about unleashing the most powerful force we have in this world, our creativity. It's so important that we rally as a community around the ideas we believe in. And so if you believe in this show, you believe in the work that I've done in my whole you know, lifelong career as a creator, then picking up a copy of Creative Calling would be so appreciated. And again, most importantly, it's about being a messenger for spreading this message. This is my ask of you. All right. Thanks very much for listening. And now let's get back into the show. Welcome to Dr. Ben Hardy. Thank you, man. Happy to be with you. <laughs> Appreciate you being in the in the house today. Congrats on the book. It's a big day for you. I know. Um, pub day, right? Congratulations. Pub day. <laughs> you know what I'm feeling. <laughs> I, do. I, I do. I do. And again, I'm as I, I revealed in the intro to the show. I love psychology and mindset. To me, mindset is the foundation of everything. It's the foundation. If if we are, if our lives mirror the quality of our thoughts, um, and we have the ability to control those thoughts, that's um, a great place to be. And if we see our thoughts as something that just happened to us or bobbing in the tide, um, then to me, that's a, a sad picture of the world. And your new book deals specifically with this. And I think there's we're at a reckoning right now where a lot of folks are um, reviewing what they have thought in the past, what they think of themselves. Um, a lot of people want to make change at this time. So your book is well-timed. And I'm wondering, what about like these personalities that we believe we've locked into or that we somehow uncover as a young adult and then we are stuck in that? That seems like a, an incredibly fixed mindset. And yet it's the popular, I would say, ongoing way that personality uh, and mindset is discussed in our culture. So I'm wondering if you can tell us why we're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'd say the general view that people have is, and I, I kind of think about the three Ps, there's passion, purpose, and personality. Those three Ps are generally, I think from a common perspective, things that we talk about as they're things you discover or find. Um, I really like what Cal Newport says about passion, it being obviously the byproduct of effort, learning, investment. Um, from the purpose perspective, I really like Viktor Frankl, who said, you know, 
<clears throat> excuse me, he says that life is not meaningless based on circumstances, but a lack of meaning and purpose, which he basically says is a freely chosen task, you know? And so, and then personality is kind of just the same thing. I mean, people think that it's something you discover and once you've found it, then you can then live your purpose or find that perfect spouse or find that perfect career. And so it leads to more of a passive approach to life, less of an imaginative approach. And there's a lot of reasons why we do it that way. Um, there's a really good, there's a lot of research from a guy named Daniel Gilbert. He's a Harvard psychologist. And one of the things that he's found in his research is that even if you think about who you were 10 years ago, you look back, you can see that you're a totally different person from who you were, let's just say 10 years ago. You don't see the world the same. You wouldn't make the same decisions as your former self would. As a rule, people think that who we are today is who we're always going to be. We very much underpredict the changes that are going to happen in the future. And we assume that the person we are today is who we're always going to be because we spend very little time imagining who our future self is. And we also assume that that's who we're going to be in the future. Yeah. What do you think about the, again, we're in a, a time right now where there's a lot of uh, sort of reviewing of who we are or, or beliefs that we've held. And I'm hoping that not only that we can change, but that we can change quickly. So I'm wondering if your <laughs> if your um, research, do you feel like that points to our ability to change quickly? And if so, how quickly can we change in a moment? Give us uh, some guidance on how we have to think about that. Yeah, we can change very quickly. It has a lot to do with the meaning we give to this, you know, to what's going on now. The meaning we hold to on things that happened in the past. So obviously right now we're in a big state of change as it, mm -hmm. as it relates to COVID-19, as it relates to Black Lives Matter, you know what I mean? And, and many other things. I mean, I'm, those are, you know, probably mostly, though they're not purely U U.S. things, obviously COVID's worldwide. But yeah, when, you, when you're having new situations and when you're gathering new information and you're in, the, in a state of, you know, learning, ultimately you're going to choose to view the current situation and the former former things from a different perspective. You're going to give new meanings to the past. And that's obviously a big aspect of change is looking at the past from the perspective of the present, which is what we always do, but it's choosing different and better meanings. So I think that's what we're going through right now is we're choosing to view former things that maybe we didn't think were such a big deal. Now we're saying these are a very big deal, you know? Um, yeah. And so we're, you know, that's how memory works and that's how history works is you always interpret it from the state of the present. When it comes to like an individual, whether it be trauma or some other negative experience, we have to be very active in the meaning we give to our experiences because negative experiences in the past can shape our identity, how we see ourselves. And so, yeah, I think that we, we have to be very curious and active in choosing better meanings, but also we then have to think about our future self and be very strategic about that. So like whether it be for the US or whether it be for yourself as a human, you have to have a clear version of the future to some degree to start walking towards in order to actually start making change. Um, and you want to view that future as something that's different than the past and the present that your future self, as an example, as an individual, you know, it's really good for identity. It's really good for decision-making and it's also required for deliberate practice to view your future self as a different person and to start imagining what that looks like, start telling people about the new story, which is where you want to go versus where you've been. And that those are steps even to changing out of an addiction cycle. You'd have to actually admit that who you've been in the past is not who you want to be in the future. Yeah, I, I have read a lot about um, 
this identity in addicts, whether it's, you know, you're addicted, whatever the substance you're addicted to, let's say, uh, cigarettes, because this is a story that, um, I've heard repeatedly is the difference between people who have looked, who's, who identify as a smoker and are trying to stop smoking this identity that they have latched onto makes the transition to being, um, not addicted that much harder. Is that in line with what you're talking about? Like this, what the words that we call ourselves, how they have the embedded, embedded meaning that makes change more difficult rather than looking at, um, a future where we don't identify that. And I'm kind of curious about this identity and locking into a couple of words that we've used to describe ourselves in the past. Yeah. So identity and personality are two separate subjects. Identity is usually shaped through, through experiences and through culture, through, you know, through what's around you and also what, what has happened to you. It doesn't have to be that way though. Uh, identity can very much be chosen based on a desired future self, but identity is the, so identity drives behavior and, and behavior over time produces personality. And so identity is the driver of personality. Personality is just how you consistently show up in the world, whereas identity is the story you tell about yourself. And uh-huh. usually people's identity is very either present or f- past focused. Um, and your identity is often shaped by often negative experiences in the past, which limit how you view yourself and also limit the story you tell about yourself. But if you hear most people talking about their identity, it's usually very present focused and very definitive. So for example, like the statement, I am an introvert is actually not a statement about your personality. It's a statement about your identity. It's how you see yourself and how you describe yourself, which does lead to pretty consistently how you would behave and act. And um, yeah, I tend, you know, the goal is actually that your identity in the present is held more flexibly. Uh, Carol Dweck, her research on fixed mindset versus growth mindset, people with a, a fixed mindset are pretty definitive in who they are in the present. You know, they're defined by who they are right now, and that projects to who they think they'll be in the future. When you're very definitive about your current identity, then you're, you're non-flexible and non-imaginative about your future self. You actually assume that your future self is going to be the same person you are today, whereas with a growth mindset, you, you're not really that worried about who you are today. You're certainly not definitive about who you are today. You wouldn't be so obsessed about describing your current self. You're more interested in who you can be in the future, and so who you are right now doesn't matter that much from the perspective of the, like the growth mindset and, and also all the research on future self. So you just said a bunch of things like who we are is who we will be in the future. That's a a way that a fixed mindset person might see. And all those things that when I'm listening to you say them, they're, they're very clinical and um, like they appear like, you know, scientific observations. And me, the human is terrified when you're saying like those things of how people can view themselves as this just fixed entity that's ongoing. And, you know, if um, I like to believe that humanity ought to see itself as ever improving, as progressing and and as growing. And so the magical question is, how do we do this, Dr. Ben? Like, how how, how do we shift from this, um, this position that sounds like we're not in control of our destiny and our future. And again, if a, if a, a culture's thoughts and ideas are made up of all of the ideas or the dominant ideas of the individuals, you know, we ought to focus on changing 
ourselves and the people that are in our nearest sphere. And I love the world where this is something we can do, a, a problem we can attack or an opportunity to develop and grow. I just need you to tell me how. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's two major things. One is reframe the past and, and we can make that super simple. The other one is be very first off imaginative, but then courageous about a desired future self. So it it has a lot to do with choosing a different story about the past and also a different way of relating to your past, but also being very intentional about your future and aggressive towards the future. So like we can go, I, I'm fine going with either of those. There's obviously steps for either. I don't know which one you yeah. would prefer to talk I'm, about first. Well, I, yeah, I, I'm more passionate about um, seeing a future yep, for ourselves totally. where, where we fill in the blank. And then I'll let you share, sure. share, share the science with me. Well, so there's a lot of research out of UCLA. Um, there's a guy named Hal Hirschfeld who studies identity. The first step would actually be just to acknowledge that your future self is a different person than who you are today. Just like you're a different person from who you were three, five, ten years ago, you actually see the world very differently than you did back then. You make different decisions. You can look at your former self and, and notice that you would make different decisions than your former self would make, um, You know, whether that be in just how you eat or what you prioritize or who you spend time with. Um, and you want to view your future self as a different person. They're not the same person as you. They're going to be in a different situation. They're going to have different knowledge. They're going to be in a different culture to some degree with how fast culture is changing. And so rather than assuming that who you are today is who you'll always be, first step is just acknowledging that your future self is a different person. Next step would just be to actually take the time to imagine and think about who you want that person to be. I like, I like usually like a one to three year time frame. Um, but obviously there's a lot of like both common wisdom, but also like research to show that your how you view your future self determines what you do today. So like people who are religious, who view like an afterlife, they use that vision or that purpose to shape what they do here and now. So like from a very non like religious perspective, you would pull down like, where do you want to be in three years? And ultimately you use that as the basis for your decision making today. Um, and you would make the decisions based on like what you think your future self would want versus what you want in the moment. So obviously the first step is just imagining and deciding who you want to be, which is an ongoing, from my perspective, a drafting process, but it takes just like literally filling in the blanks. Like what are the circumstances you want to have? What are the characteristics you want to have? What are your relationships? Like you have to decide who your future self is in order to actually make intentional decisions today and also in order to go into a process of learning. As So I got an advanced copy of your book via PDF and um, I'm, but I want to be, I want to, uh, come at this question for you um, as if there's a reader who hasn't yet bought the book. What are you, like you talk about filling in the blank and drafting, but give me very, very tactically, what are your prescriptions to actually do this? Is it a recording and listening? Is it a making a list? Is it a vision board? Like what is it that you advocate for um, as the mechanism? Because right now there, I'm, I'm, seeing um seshu says he's just been reading this book um some folks chiming in from greece someone from the netherlands we got the uk dallas um and these folks want to know like give me give me some I, prescription. I, I, I like i like i like first off i like journaling i think I mean, recording is fine i know people who walk and they record themselves talking about it i personally like journaling with a pen and a pad 
And I think it's good to journal with questions. So, you know, you could ask yourself, you know, basically, where do you want to be in three years from now? How much money do you want to be making? Like what, like literally what type of clothing do you wear? Like, what is your purpose? What are you focused on in three years from now? What do you want your relationships to be like? Who do you want to be in a relationship with? Like, I, I have lists, you know, of these questions that you can fill out, but it's a lot of it's just taking the time. Questions are a really good way to get your mind going in more of a curious manner, but just, you know, take, I, I like journaling personally. Um, and I would recommend journaling. Usually people avoid journaling because it feels overwhelming. Uh, and so if that's, if that's the case, you could just record and like, write, you know, do it, you know, record yourself doing it. I tend to like prefer journaling in short spurts. So you might even just answer one of those questions one day, take five minutes and just journal bullet points. I often do bullet points, very just brief, ugly bullet points. My journals are really sketchy, really ugly, but just bullet points like five things you'd like to see happen in your life over the next three years you know what i mean um one of the things that we did with our kids actually recently is we just had them as a group we all went in a circle we've got three kids that we adopted which has been interesting but like we asked them tell us three experiences that you think have been the biggest impact on your life like one obviously being like adoption and stuff like that but what are the, what are the three experiences that you think like have been important in your life. And then the next question was, what are three experiences you really want to have in the future? And usually when you're thinking about your future self, a lot of it has to do with the experiences you want to have or the experiences that you hope will change your life. So like for us, my wife and I, like when I was in my first year of my PhD program, we wanted to become parents. Like that was an experience that we knew would change us in certain ways and that we wanted to have. Like not, not everyone obviously needs to want that experience, but you know, there's other experiences that I want to have. And so it's uh, one good thing to think about is, is like, or an easy way to look at this is what are some of the experiences that you hope to go through that may have an impact on you? Like those experiences in the future you could write about and maybe you could then think, well, why, why do you want to have these experiences? And what do they, what do you think that they're going to do for you once you go through those experiences? Um, Cause you can use, you know, Elon Musk as one example, like, he wants to colonize Mars. For some reason, that's an experience that he wants to have. But that future experience is the thing that's driving his current behavior. And, and so like the future experiences you want to have, whether it's like running a marathon, uh, writing a bestseller, um, being in an amazing relationship, like those are the types of experiences that are more tangible, which your brain can hold on to. Like the brain really likes numbers. Like that's why goals that are num numeric really work. Or like tangible experiences like running across the finish line like the brain really likes tangible stuff so those are some things you can do to start thinking about your future self thank you and that makes me feel a little bit better because <laughs> i'm i'm uh i would say growing my journaling practice i haven't had a, a hardcore discipline around um manifesting rather than a regular visualization practice and i find that the those are very Ironically, those are sort of a fixed thing that I establish at one point during the year, and I don't allow a lot of room for change and and um, tacking and jiving uh, across uh, you know across time. I, I tend to be rather goal oriented, and what I find is that I have day to day ambitions, um, and what I find is the sum of my day to day ambitions actually contribute materially, you know, to your point, to what actions I take and and when I only have a couple of goals that I write down and sort of visualize on a regular basis that I haven't allowed a lot of flexibility. So I started 
journaling. And, you know, for so many people, there are people chiming in right now about um, how, how journaling has been helpful for them. Donnell talks about being intentional. Um, uh, oh, Drew, Hick Drew Hitchcock says he's taking a break from listening to personality isn't permanent to listen to this interview. So we have, we've got some fans in the audience, but you know, my point is this journaling has been super helpful for me to, um, continue to hold on to a growth mindset where there, anything is possible on a day to day, despite having, you know, if colonize Mars as Elon's and, you know, mine is make the world a more creative place. Um, is this journaling, uh, do you feel like this is a, how, how focused can journaling be passive or is journaling always this active state? And I'm a asking for a friend, I'll say that, but, uh, just, is this an active process for you and, and in the studies that you have, um, cultivated in order to write the book, like what role did journaling play? Was it central? Was it parallel, but not critical? I think journaling is is pretty critical. I think that, you know, if you go to any clinical, you know, like, you know, as an example, my younger brother is literally in a treatment facility right now for addiction. And like journaling doesn't have to be just like writing in a journal. Like what he's doing right now is he's doing the 12 steps. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, but, but part of that is literally he has to write down all of the like resentments he has towards himself so like he has to go through a workbook which could be another form of journaling but he is writing it down and it's not enough just to have something in your head you actually have to write it down look at it and then ultimately present it to someone in the case of alcoholics anonymous or whatever like you actually have to like write down all these things read it to someone else and get it out of your system you know like and so i think that it's journaling is only part of the process but there's obviously plenty of research on journaling that Taking the time to journal even about just what you're going through, what you're thinking about, first off, it clears the fog. It also turns your emotions into a story so that you can then actually comprehend your emotions rather than having your emotions just be fogging and overwhelming you. Um, mm -hmm. So I think just journal. It, so it, it's both, it could be both passive and active, but if you're wanting to have what are called peak experiences, which are kind of aha moments, which allow you to be more flexible as a person, you want to be very active. Um, like you're not going to have very many peak experiences or ahas if you're being passive. Um, those type of experiences come from like an intentional mindset. You have to actually like be thinking about what you want and then actually take steps in that direction. Uh, just like you're not going to have a lot of peak experiences in a classroom if you're being a passive learner. You have to be a super active learner if you're like in a class, you, you know, maybe taking notes, actually like trying to think about how that relates to you. Passivity usually isn't going to produce a lot of ahas or, or, or mind stretching experiences that allow you to have different perspectives on former experiences or even on your future self. So I would say you definitely want to be active in the process. Helpful. Thank you. Um, so, um, looking at, uh, Julie says art journaling is a daily practice for her very meditative three, 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 Harry, three, 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 three says journaling helps me accept the difficult past instead of deny it. So part of, yeah, that, and to me, that's a really interesting transition, um, into managing trauma. And I, I believe through my own review of my past and, um, knowing just enough about these subjects to be dangerous, but not to be a, an expert in by any stretch is that we've all got 
trauma and it comes in different forms. Um, and I, I'm curious in your language or in the language of your new book, how do you reframe these traumatic and painful experiences into something, a fresh narrative that will support the future that you want for yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's super important. Like there's a few super important things to realize from the beginning. Number one is, is that trauma can be huge. Like we often think about it, you know, like could be some form of abuse or going to war, but trauma is also like, it could be being told you're not good at math, like, and actually believing it. So trauma is any negative emotional experience that shapes your identity and your identity is how you see yourself. And so if you, if, you know, if someone tells you you're not cool, you know, at school and like, obviously that hurts your feelings. Like that could impact your identity where like you start to see yourself as not being someone that could have good friends. Right. And so that's going to then impact over time. Your personality is going to impact how you act. Maybe you're going to be more avoidant towards friends. And so trauma is any negative emotional experience that you've had that shapes how you see yourself and then ultimately shapes how you operate in the world. So like there's a really good book on the subject called the body keeps the score and it, mm-hmm. you know, and that book is actually the thing that propelled me to write my book. Um, but one of the things. Say that, more. Yeah, say more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that book pushed me to write this book because he talked a lot about how trauma freezes your personality. It keeps you stuck in the past. It ultimately leads you to being emotionally rigid, which means basically, so like personality and comfort zone are very similar subjects. To do anything outside your comfort zone is probably to do something slightly out of character or out of how you typically do things. And trauma, negative emotional experiences, if you don't deal with them, you're going to become emotionally rigid, meaning you're not going to be willing to deal with emotions. Instead, you're going to kind of build walls around yourself and avoid hard experiences or hard conversations. So like the more you can deal with uncertainty, be vulnerable, try new things, the more what's called psychologically flexible you'll become, often becoming more confident. So you got to get used to being open, honest, vulnerable um, in order to move forward. But Anyways, one other just quick thought, and then we can obviously talk about reframing it, is that trauma isn't actually facts. It's a meaning. Like, it's a meaning you've given to an experience. And so, uh, and that's how, so you have a negative emotional experience, and then you give a meaning to that experience. So I'll give like a a story. This is a story that is like an easy way for me to explain it. But I have a, a distant relative, and I do share her story in the book, but she's someone I met. She's in her 80s who's an amazing woman, super intelligent, bright, just amazing woman. And when I was getting to know her a little bit, I found out, you know, we were talking about books and stuff because I was, we were just talking about me as an author. And she said that she'd always wanted to, to write children's books. And I was curious. And so I asked her like, well, you know, have you written any? And she said, no. I, she's like, I've always wanted to write and illustrate books. And I was like, well, have you done that? And she said, no. And I said, why not? And she said, I'm not good at drawing. And so I just never... I never did it because I'm just not, I'm not good at art. I'm a great writer, but I'm just not good at drawing. So I just didn't do it. And I'm like, well, what happened? Tell me, like, tell me, why aren't you good at drawing? And so then she recounted to me an experience that was 40 years prior. And basically the experience was in her early 40s, she started to finally, like she had a few kids. And so she was going to start pursuing this career or actually just pursue the dream. And so she started taking private art lessons. And in a single art class, there was like four or five other people in the class who were paying for a private instructor, they were doing one exercise. And in that exercise, the teacher ended up correcting her, kind of crossing off her, like drawing on the easel pad and was just just correcting her. But for some reason, my like my distant relative of sorts 
she was very embarrassed by that. She was also kind of offended that he was correcting her in front of the others and that he didn't correct any of the others. And so basically in the heat of those emotions, a story was formed. Like we call it a cognitive commitment because you commit to something in your mind. But the narrative was, I'm not good at this. I can't draw. And so like that was the last art class she went to. She never drew again and she never reframed that meaning. So like that was the meaning that she gave to her emotions was... I'm not good at this. And that's a meaning. That's not a fact. And so the, the core point here is, is that she could have chosen a different meaning. It might have taken some work. It would have maybe taken journaling about it or telling like a friend about it or maybe asking the instructor, why did you do that? And maybe getting some alternative perspectives. Um, but she didn't do any of that stuff. Instead, she had an initial reaction, which was embarrassment, maybe shame or, or you know, some other thing. And then she created a narrative and she never got a different perspective to choose a different and better meaning. And so as a result, you know, she never was, she still views the past the same way, which you don't want. You want to actually continue to update your view of the past and the meanings of former experiences as you evolve as a person. But she never did that in this case. What's an example of reframing a past uh, in order to be helpful for your future? Like well, pretend, look, pretend that yeah. you're going to counsel uh, your distant relative. Yeah. So it's important to realize that meaning is based on context. So as an example, we're in COVID-19. Um, when COVID-19 just started, I actually sent an email to my email list and I used the word viral in it. I said that this article went viral, just not thinking about it. And there was probably like 30 people who emailed me and just said, Ben, you know, given what's going on right now, will you not use the word viral? And I was like, totally chill. Like, that's fine. The meaning of the word viral meant something different during COVID-19 than it meant five weeks before, you know what I mean? So the meaning of content is shaped by context. And so the way to change the meaning is by getting a different context. So like, as an example for myself, um, well, I'll just use her as the example. In order for her to choose a different meaning, she would have to get more information. You know, she, maybe she would need to even just tell asking friends, you know, like, so there's a quote from Peter Levine's book, and he's a big research researcher on trauma, but he says, trauma isn't what happens to you. It's what you hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. So that's why having an empathetic witness or having, having someone you can talk to, even like regularly, I would recommend obviously everyone who's pursuing goals or things like that, or just living life. You need people to talk to about what you're going through because they can then help you see things maybe from a different perspective. But in her case, you know, I would have her talk even just to me about this. You know what I mean? Like, you know, given that she can't go back in time 40 years, to go talk to the instructor. But let's just say that, you know, I'm having a conversation with her 40 years ago and I'm one of her friends. I would have, I would have said, you know, is it possible that he wasn't trying to like offend you? You know, like literally just asking questions to get different perspectives. And you could ask yourself these types of questions in a journal, you know, like what's a better way of looking at this? Um, I would encourage her if we were living 40 years in the past around this time, first off to think about, you know, what is it you ultimately want? You know, like, do you still want to be a, 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 an artist? Like, is the, is the idea that you can't do art going to stop you from doing that? In, in her case, it probably would. How can we look at this differently? Um, if she would have gone and had a conversation with that person, with the, with the art instructor, and asked him what happened, it may have taken a lot of courage to say, look, what, what, that, what you did kind of hurt me or offended me. I'm just wondering why you corrected me in that way she might have gotten more context. She might have understood. Maybe he might have told her, look, I actually think you're really good. And I was just trying to help you see that. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. 
that might have totally changed everything for her. She might have then let it go and said, oh, like, okay, I was being over, overly sensitive. I can still do this. And so a lot of it just has to do with actively seeking a better meaning. Like if, mm-hmm. for example, you know, as just one last example, like I, I actually failed a speech terribly, um, probably like three weeks ago to a group of people who I consider very high profile and like people who I really wanted help from, particularly on this book launch, to be honest with you. And I gave a speech and it just totally flopped. It didn't go the way I wanted to. And I was embarrassed. And I was thinking about leaving the group I was a part of because I just, in the moment, the meaning I gave to it was, is that this group isn't good for me anymore. Like that was the, that was the immediate idea that came to my mind because of how I was feeling after my failure. But I didn't really want that to be the truth. You know, I, I knew that that was inflexible thinking. And so I actually just talked to the guy who ran the group and I said, this is how I'm feeling. I, I, first off, I'm sorry for wasting your guys' time. Second off, I'm not sure if I, I should be in this group anymore because I just flopped this speech and I'm now questioning if I should even be in this group. You know, this was me being active about hopefully changing my own mind. <laughs> and so he then told me, yeah, Ben, you actually, your speech was totally fine. And ultimately we can still turn this into something good. And in the end, I just had to choose to believe, which I actually genuinely do, that what happened to me was the best thing that could have happened to me because if I can learn from it, then my future is going to be a lot bigger. And so ultimately, you have to choose that your past is something that you can use versus something that you can't use. Your past is something that you can use. I think that's a really, got a really interesting tie to journaling. If you're journaling about things that have happened to you and you can go back and look at rewriting that history, at um, it just seems... It seems obvious now when you've, you know, you've given us um, the context. Actually, there's a, it's, it's interesting. There's a, a question from Facebook. Um, Alex Blumel wants to know, do you ever go back and read your journal entries? Yeah, and it's fun because then you can actually see how much you've changed as a person. You can see how much your thinking is different. Um, so I, I don't do it all the time, but I actually recently did it. I recently went back and read literally the art, like the journals that I had when I was like engaged with my wife (laughs) just for fun, you know, and it was really fun to like, see what I was worried about back then and what I was thinking about. And so I think it's amazing. You know, in the front cover of all of my journals, I answer five questions. First question is just, and I go through about one a month, but like the first question is, where am I right now? And I literally just put like five or six bullets. Like I could, and if I was writing a journal today, I'd say like my book just launched. You know what I mean? Uh, and just like five, five bullets. The next question is what are like, what are my wins from the last 90 days, personal or professional? Like what have I been up to the last 90 days? The next one is where do I want to be in 90 days? And all of these are just, I mean, actually since we're on video, I guess I can just show yeah. you what it looks like. <laughs> Please um, do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, this is what it looks like. I don't know if you can see this. Um, I mean, it's pretty sketchy. Let me, no, let me but it's sure. a lot. It's just large. It's largely bullets. And yeah. So like, here's like look. here. Yeah. Basically like, here's where I am right now. Here's where I want to, here's the wins from the last 90 days. Here are my wins for the next 90 days that I want. And then I've got like future self. Where do I want to be in three years? And where do I want to be at the end of this year? And the reason that's cool is, is that I can look at any journal from four years ago and look at where I was at right now, just by looking at that. And I'm like, Oh, interesting. You know, like that's what I was up to right now. Um, So yeah, I think it's very useful to go and look at old journals because then you can actually see how much you've changed, which also gives you confidence that you can keep growing and changing as a person. Uh, And Elizabeth wants to know on this topic of journaling, uh, that's very helpful, especially those five prompts. 
Um, but Elizabeth wants to know, my journaling often goes in circles. Is there any advice? And it sounds to me like I'm no no uh, doctor, Dr. Hardy, <laughs> but that she's like part of the way that you would go in circles is to be holding on to the past. But, you know, help us understand it since you're the uh, you're the expert in the hot seat. Oh, dude, I don't know about I don't know about that. But uh, um, <laughs> as far as going in circles, I'd be interested in her thoughts. Like, is it that her journaling, like she keeps repeatedly writing about the same thing over and over or that she can't actually you know, I, I would say in that case, because it's important not to just journal, but also to have conversations. Um, that's part of what we call integration is like you want to not only not only think about it and ruminate on it, but you ultimately need to like turn it into conversations and then ultimately turn it into a choice. You know, like, for example, with my failed speech, it was a, pro- a it was a choice that I framed it as I actually chose to frame it as this is the best meeting I've ever been to, even though it was probably emotionally the worst. Um, and the reason I was able to get to that point was because my mom literally, and this, this all happened less than a month ago, but my mom told me that last Mother's Day, like, which was like a month ago, was the best Mother's Day of her life. And I was like, why did you, like, I'm like, first off, that's awesome. I'm glad you had the best Mother's Day ever, even though like my brother's like in the treatment facility and stuff. Why was it the best Mother's Day? And she just said, because that's, that's how I felt. And so we can actually choose, like I just then used that to choose the new story, but then you need to tell the new story. Mm. Um, so I think when you're thinking about, you know, a former experience or a future experience, not only do you want to think about it, but you do want to start to experiment with actually telling people that that's now how you feel about it. So like, I am now telling you guys that I genuinely believe that three or four weeks ago when I flopped that speech, that it was the absolute best thing that happened to me. That's the meaning I'm giving to it, but that's also now the story I'm telling about it. And so you get to choose the meaning you've given but you also then have to choose to proactively tell that new story. And so, mm. you know, in going in circles, I think maybe try turning it into something more definitive. Like, what are you actually going in circles about? What are you struggling about? Maybe what's a different version that you can look at it? You know, how, what's a different meaning you can give to it? And then maybe start telling people, you know, maybe this is a better way of looking at it and getting some different perspectives. And so I, I just think you need to then go to the next step and start, choosing to look at it a certain way and start telling people about this new version. That's uh, directly related to Cynthia Flores's question, um, which is about traumas that have emotional and physical pain tied to them. Are those reframable in the same way she wants to know? Yeah, actually literally the, um, the whole chapter six in my book is all about updating the subconscious, literally, which is yeah. all about how unresolved trauma often creates physical pain. Um, so like my aunt, as an example, Jane, who I tell her story in the book, she had a negative experience. She had a water skiing accident, I think like in the 90s. She's someone who's super physical. She's turning 60 next year, but you wouldn't believe it if you saw her. Like she's been an aerobic instructor her whole life. She is in amazing shape and stuff. But because of the water skiing accident, she was told that she was never going to be able to run again. <laughs> and so, like, she never did run, uh, even though she continued to teach aerobics and stuff like that. But fast forward, like, a decade or two, and, you know, she she then ends up having a lot of resentment towards her husband. Um, and all of a sudden, the pain in her leg comes back, which she had not felt that leg pain. And a lot of people have back pain or headaches. Uh, a lot of this stuff, you know, memories are stored in certain places in the body. And so, um, you know, for her, because she started to feel so resentful and angry towards her husband, 
crazy pain started showing back up in her leg where she stopped being able to teach her aerobics classes. And ultimately, she read a book called The Great Pain Deception, which is an interesting book by um, Stephen Ozanich. And, you know, she actually ended up having a couple conversations with Stephen. Um, and she came to realize that the reason that she was having the pain in her legs is not because there's anything wrong with her legs. It's literally because she's suppressing the emotions that she has towards her husband. And that it, it took her literally a few months to actually accept the fact that her physical pain was the byproduct of emotional, you know, but she, she read his book and ultimately she started journaling about it. And now she journals. She has what she calls her rage journal. But she started journaling about um, just honest. You know, like Dan Sullivan says, all progress starts by telling the truth. And so she just started writing about her frustration, telling people that this was how she was really feeling. And then ultimately she had some conversations with her husband that this is how she was feeling. But one of the really good things that came from all of this for her was that she didn't actually need to change her husband. It wasn't that her husband actually needed to go get a job. It's that she needed to change how she felt about it. And in order to do that, she had to actually like form a clear picture of it. She had to start writing about it, start telling people about it. And she still does it. It's an emotional regulation technique. Every time she gets upset or, or triggered in some way, she just journals about it, writes about how she's feeling, and then ultimately tells someone about how she's feeling so that then she can choose a better lens and a better meaning for it. And so now her relationship with her husband's amazing. Her leg pain's gone. She's no longer doing all these expensive therapies and she's running again. And now she's a lot more healthy emotionally, but it's not something you just do once. Like she's actively clearing her emotions, actively, you know, actively not suppressing her pain. And, and, and uh, she can run and stuff like that. So yeah, there's a lot of connection between physical pain and suppressed emotions because your body is actually literally your subconscious mind. Like the two are the exact same thing. Your body and your subconscious are the same thing. And you suppress, you know, you store your emotions and your memories in your body. Fascinating. Yet, chapter six in the book about reprogram, rewriting your subconscious. Um, I'm hoping you can keep talking about this. Like, it, it, you, in the in the chapter, obviously, you go deeper than we could go here. Which is, again, if you're just now joining, I'm sitting here with Dr. Ben Hardy, um, an organizational psychologist and best-selling author of a, his last book, Willpower Doesn't Work. And today, literally today, his new book drops called Personality Isn't Permanent. We've got folks coming in from all over the world. I've already shouted out to a handful. New new to our meeting here is now Central Virginia. We've got someone from Seattle, where I'm at right now. Nice. Um, Mem Memphis, Tennessee. We've got Brisbane, Australia. What time is it in Australia right now? Go to bed. Um, <laughs> um, just uh, a couple things. One, I'm hoping you can first recap for us a little bit more on this reprogramming the psychology if you're just tuning in this is one of the most what i think powerful chapters in the book uh because it's essentially a blueprint for you know defining your future and um please just go a little deeper on chapter six for us if you will and, and i do think it i think it um it ties in a lot to the question that we just took from uh from cynthia about trauma Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's just important to realize that the experiences you have not only have an impact on your mind, but literally have an impact on your body, <laughs> and, and that your body becomes accustomed to emotions. So for example, when I look at my cell phone out of addiction, it's because my body has become accustomed to the regular dopamine hits. My, my body literally wants the dopamine and my, my body is my subconscious. And so I'm unconsciously acting, I'm grabbing my phone and I'm doing a behavior that then produces the emotions that my body really wants. Emotions and chemicals being the same thing. 
uh, you know, my brain then releases the dopamine. And so what's super important to realize is, is that your body has become accustomed to certain emotions. Like if you're generally an angry person, you know what I mean? Like you're going to create behaviors that are going to create anger, you know, and, and, and um, that was where my aunt was at. Like she, and she wouldn't have admitted it because she's kind of a perfectionist, but she admits it now because she's a lot more vulnerable and honest, which is honestly one of the big keys um, is that she would do things in her marriage and just in her work to create that feeling of anger towards her husband. Once she realized that that anger was producing literally physical pain in her body, um, you know, she had to op openly acknowledge that it was her anger and her, and her lack of being open and honest with other people about that that was producing extreme back pain and stuff like that. And so obviously one of the things that you want to do in upgrading yourself, you know, at the, like, and different levels is, is get your body and your mind accustomed to different emotions. Uh, and that requires actually doing new things. You know, like when you try new things, when you're, when you're pursuing a future self, as an example, you imagine a future self and you're actually trying something new, you're going to experience a lot of new emotions. Um, you're going to experience a lot of uncertainty, <laughs> trying new goals, um, trying anything new. like me, if I'm wanting to like, you know, be a better husband, I'm going to, I might go and try something and I might be like, you know, like might take my wife flowers, you know, maybe if I've been out of, out of that habit and I might have no clue how she's going to respond. Um, you know, that might take a little courage to like be out of character a little bit if I've been kind of not so, uh, attentive to her lately. And so when you try new things, often our brain doesn't want us to try new things because our brain wants our behavior to be consistent, you know, like it's predictive. You know, we want our life to be predictable and stable. Our brain is actually literally considered what's called a prediction machine. We form memory so that we can predict what's going to happen. We want to know what the outcome is going to be. And so when you're constantly trying new things, you're going to deal with a lot of uncertainty because you're not going to know what's going to happen. And that's actually where you become more flexible and grow as a person. And that's also where you're going to experience more emotions so that you can become more flexible. Um, and so that's what you want to do is you want to get better and better at holding your emotions more loosely, not being so defined by your current reactions, but being flexible. If you, if you have, if you have a teacher who tells you you're, you're terrible. Yeah, you feel it. You don't ignore the feeling, but you, you can be more flexible with the emotion. And ultimately you can choose the way you frame it. Um, and you can also not hold it in, but you can let it out so that it doesn't become a part of your literal biology. So it, it's just a process of communicating more openly and honestly, choosing better frames for how you see things and ultimately actively trying new things. Your brain loves novelty, even though it would hold you against it. Like just continually trying new things and growing as a person. It's, it's literally my, my 18 month old twins having swimming lessons. You know, our 18 month old twins, we want them to learn how to swim because we live in Florida. And, um, you know, four months ago when we first started them in the swimming lessons, of course they hated it. Like we were putting, they were getting dropped in the pool. They were hating it. Now they're extremely good at it and they're extremely confident. Now they jump in the pool. Like these little girls who can't even talk, they jump in the pool and they can flip on their back and swim. Um, but it was a lot of emotional experiences for them to actually learn how to learn, you know, and learn how to swim. Uh, and I think as adults, we stopped doing that, you know, and a lot of it has to do with we're not very good at openly just sharing how we feel, sharing our viewpoints, sharing that we're frustrated. Or on the other end, genuinely and openly sharing about who our future self is that we want to be, sharing our goals without worrying about other people's criticism. Just being a lot more of an open book with the right people allows you to not, you know, it allows you to not hold your emotions in and then have those emotions drive you. Yeah, I, I think there's sometimes it's good to be driven by emotion, but by and large, that 
it limits. That's part of this limiting belief. These start to be stories that we tell ourselves and we get these default neural networks. And uh, it makes me want to uh, take a question from uh, Gwen Kaplan um, about being in a bad marriage. I'm wondering if you're, you know, how you would, um, what you'd recommend to her. It's, it sounds like you used an example earlier of your aunt's uh, relationship with her husband. And I don't know whether that would be called a bad marriage or just some resentment, but Gwen Dana Kaplan wants to know if I'm in a bad, bad marriage, can I reframe it and stay in it? Or what do you recommend? Well, my aunt Jane did because bad marriage can have many different meanings. In the book, I literally tell the story about my wife and about how she was in a, an extremely abusive marriage for three years, you know, and uh, we're talking all forms of extreme abuse. He would hit her, sexually abuse her, like she became a shell of herself in that marriage. And so in that situation, just her reframing it wasn't really a good idea. <laughs> like she needed to get out of that situation. And so I'm not going to tell you whether you should like leave the situation or get help changing the situation because I don't know the depth of the situation. Um, but relationships, just like people, create patterns. You know what I mean? Like we all we all get into patterns and roles, and we we just do things on autopilot. And and uh, in order to break those patterns, you have to kind of you got to first off like acknowledge the elephant in the room, say that things are not going the way you want. Like you got to be honest about how you're feeling. So if you feel the marriage is bad, you probably need to go like seek help. If you want the marriage to continue and to change and improve, then you, you can't hide any of that. You actually need to like, you have to stop the pattern that's currently happening, which is creating unhappiness for you and maybe even for the spouse. Um, and so you've got to like be open and honest and start telling your, your husband or wife, um, that, this isn't working anymore and that like things need to change and that you need help and, and also be empathetic towards them. Like the other person has their own perspective. <laughs> and uh, usually if change is going to happen in a healthy way, you've got to not just believe that your side's the only side that's correct. And so like, I would recommend if you want this marriage to improve and to transform, which I believe it can. I mean, there's some extreme cases where it may be just highly recommended that you just get out of that toxic situation but you know in most cases you can go get help but it requires a lot of honesty and it's going to require a lot of work i would actually genuinely recommend therapy excellent um and for those who joined late there's a lot of questions in the comments about the five prompts that you shared earlier in your journal nice. and I'm, I'm wondering you know for those who are uh, gonna are listening to this recorded uh, they have the ability to go back and rewind and press pause and write them down. But for those folks, uh, and we do have a lot of folks tuned in from all over the world. We just had uh, Karen tuned in from Hampshire in the UK. We've got Wales, uh, San Diego, Ireland. Um, hi, Sean. I see you there in Ireland. Sean O'Farrell. Um, restate, if you would, those five prompts totally. that you use to journal. And it sounds like you've been really consistent over a long period of time with them. Yeah, they're, they're cool. And I'll kind of explain to some degree why they're, why they work. One is just, where am I right now? Just total, just flat. Like what is your current situation or what is like, what are you currently thinking about or working on? So like for me, one of the things I would say if I was writing it today is like, you know, I just released my book today. You know, I've got five kids, like it's now summer. We're getting ready to go on a family vacation. Like I would just like write about like, what am I doing right now? Um, just so that if I were to go, like, if I were to give that to someone, someone who doesn't know me and they were to read like the five bullets about me right now, they'd have a, a decent snapshot on like what my situation is right now. It'd be a very limited snapshot, 
But, um, and then the next question is, what are my wins from the last 90 days? And I just write down personally and professionally, like what's gone on, you know what I mean? Like whether it's like in this one, which was written in January of 2020, I wrote like I got personality isn't permanent done literally. So this, with this journal, I finished personality isn't permanent, the writing of it. Uh, I talked about just focusing on my wife and kids a lot more. Um, just bought a, a, a home. So like I bought this place, which is my like office and relaunched a program that I was doing. So like that, that's, those were some of my wins from the last 90 days at that point in time. And why, why it's nice to like talk about your recent wins is because that gives you a sense that things are changing and improving. And, and that allows you like a sense of confidence and momentum so that that can obviously propel uh, future creative thinking. So it's good to actually rec. And I, and I find that people don't spend enough time doing this. They don't spend enough time thinking about the progress they've made. It's one of the most powerful exercises you could do is just look at your life over the last 90 days or even over the last year and just look at all of the wins that have happened like all of the good things that have actually happened you'll be sh- I, I find that most people don't spend enough time thinking about the progress that they've actually made and as a parent I can actually end up having the same fixed mindset about my own kids where I don't it's we it's easy to get locked into a certain perspective about yourself or other people where you think that you're the same person you used to be when in reality you're actually not the same person you used to be so like with my kids, uh, it's easy for me to sometimes think that they're still the same people that they were three or four years ago. And then with a little bit of like introspection or even just thinking about like the wins that they are making, I can then realize, oh my goodness, they're actually getting so much better <laughs> in like, you know, at their chores or like at their schoolwork, at their reading, you know, like, holy cow, actually look like he's now reading books like that, you know, like, and so it's just nice to take the time to like think about where you're at. So anyways, I'll go through the questions quick now. But basically, no, this is great. Just the people are going crazy. This is so, so helpful. And the context on why oh, you're yeah. choosing these things is, and it also for those who haven't yet read the book, this is like the book is, is embedded with um, depth around each of these topics. So sorry, keep going on, on the, uh, the journaling topics and why. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing it's so nice just to be able to open the journal. Um, like for me, I like waking up in the morning, putting myself into a new environment from, you know, just by changing environments, you actually become more mindful, you become more aware. Um, you also increase your energy with more mindfulness. And so like, for me, I wake up, jump in my car, drive to some location, usually it's just outside the gym, because I like waking up, getting myself going and going to the gym. But when you, when you read these questions or these prompts, uh, it allows you to get into the mindset of your future self. So that you can then write from the perspective of your future self so that you can be intentional with your day. Because you can't actually make intentional decisions without a purpose or a direction. Intention and purpose are essentially the same word or the same meaning. And so you need a purpose in order to have a direction or, a, or an intention. And so for me, a lot of this is about framing what I want to do with myself versus just being reactive to my current situation. Uh, and then by reading these things in the beginning, it actually literally allows me to write from the perspective of my goals, from the perspective of my future self. So these are the four questions. Where am I right now? What are the what are my wins from the last 90 days? What are the wins I want to have in the next 90 days? And then who's my future self in three years from now? Literally four ugly bullets. And then where do I want to be in one year from now? And just like three or four ugly bullets, but I like this for a few reasons. First off, every month when I get to redo this, I get to just see progress. Every day when I journal, I get to just look at it and uh, 
see where I'm at and feel confident about my recent wins and also just really clear on my goals. And then, you know, to the point before, every time I read back on super old journals, I get to see the extreme distance that I've traveled from my current self to my former self, which gives me confidence that my future self will be even more different. Say more about redesigning your environment. I think for many, this is uh, seen as not a choice. They're in a set of circumstances where either for financial reasons, for psychological reasons, for some set of reason, they are they are where they are. And much of that is is true. But even in the smallest way, is it is it moving to a different room? Is it moving to a different room in your mind? How do we redesign our environments to to say pull us toward our future rather than hold us in in our past? Mm-hmm. And I will say that the entire book "Willpower Doesn't Work" is on that subject. But I, but for this one, I will say. Um, Environment and situation, I kind of look at the same way. Situation, like you're in a situation, but you're also in an environment. You can design environments and you can design situations. So I'll explain both. Like, So there's a quote from um, Marshall Goldsmith. He wrote a book called Triggers a couple of years ago, but he said, if we do not create and control our environment, our environment creates and controls us. <laughs> and so it's really important to realize that you're being shaped by external things. Uh, one being like literally the shape of the room, you know, like if you're on an airplane, you're not probably not going to run very fast. You know what I mean? But the other one is just um, the inputs coming in. So like information is one form of environment coming in, food, experiences, people. These are things that are coming in that are also shaping how you live. And so one of, there's, there's three strategies that I give in this book for environment design. Um, one is strategic ignorance which is about eliminating decision fatigue. And decision fatigue means that there's so many options that you don't feel like you can actually make a choice. And with the internet, with media, there's so many options that you're gonna burn out your willpower by just thinking about all of them. And so you wanna be strategically ignorant of most of the things going on out there, which you know are ultimately distractions. It's about making one decision that makes 100 decisions easier, like literally removing the app so that you don't have to think about it, removing the junk food from your house so that you don't have to always be thinking about it. You make one decision so you don't have to think about it ever again. Um, so like that's, that's one. And like, you know, I give a few examples like Seth Godin as one example, he talks about how he used to read the Amazon reviews about his books and that it used to depress him because there would be all sorts of trolls. Now he just ultimately decided one day that he's just never going to do that again. He's just going to strategically be ignorant of the reviews on his Amazon account because it just doesn't help his future self. So just thinking about what is the information you're consuming that's ultimately wasteful or the experiences or the situations that you're in that you should probably just choose to be ignorant of, that you don't need to be aware of anymore. Make one decision and eliminate the options. Um, the other one would be strategic remembering, which is about designing your environment. And that's one of the, like, this is a, this is an, a way for me to strategically remember who my future self is. I've written about my goals. You know, we talked about vision boards. Um, I have what's called a culture wall in my house, uh, which was designed by Gaping Void. They're a culture design company. And I had art made about like my favorite ideas and beliefs so that I could then, so that um, my kids could be influenced by my favorite ideas. You know what I mean? And like, like ideas like better prolific than perfect, gratitude changes, things like just some of my favorite ideas. I had those turned into art so that my kids could see them regularly. Um, you can design your environment to remind you of your future self or to remind you of who you want to be. Like as simple as turning your, like having a, um, like a reminder on your phone go off and say like, call your wife and tell your lover. Like that's a way of designing your environment to impact your psychology. Um, the third one I'll, I'll say, and this will be the last, it would be forcing functions. 
forcing functions are how you design situations so that you can ultimately, you're putting yourself in a situation where you're removing your own internal impulse to sabotage yourself. Because we all, it's like, it's, sometimes it's hard to go to the gym. Sometimes you just don't freaking want to go. But you can create a situation where you can bypass your own, you know, like your own primary or your own current preference. And so like one thing you could do is like hire a personal trainer or have like a workout partner that's like there waiting for you at 6 a.m. Like you've created a situation where even though you don't really want to go, you, you, you're living up to the situation. So like as an example, short timelines, deadlines, Parkinson's law, like that's one of the fastest ways to design a situation that forces you to be motivated towards your future self. So like as an example, I've got another book that's actually coming out in October um, which was a co-authored book, and we purposefully only gave, they purposefully only gave me three months to write the book. And so because I had such a short deadline, I was forced to wake up super early and write and stuff, not because I'm super motivated, but because literally the situation demanded it. And so there's a final quote, and then that'll be my last thought, is uh, it's from Will Durant. He's the famous historian. But he said that the ability of the average person could be doubled if the situation demanded it. And uh, a lot of people just aren't rising to situations. You know, my wife and I, when we became foster parents of three kids, we went from zero to three freaking kids when I was a first year PhD student, not because we're super motivated or amazing, but because we put ourselves in a situation that forced us to adapt. The situation forced us to learn how to like be patient and empathetic. And so you can put yourself in situations proactively that allow you to become a better person or to achieve whatever goal you're trying to accomplish. Mm. Those three strategies are lasers, lasers. Um, let's let's wrap up on one topic again. All of the stuff we're getting, folks. You know, um, Michael Testinas saying taking so many notes. Um, Hadley wants to make sure that they can listen to this over and over again. Looking for locations, it's available where all podcasts are heard. Um, photo bang bang is saying what a great example um junk food is removing junk food from your house just removes the root cause um and again i want to thank you for being a guest on the show ben the huge uh, pleasure huge pleasure yeah no the 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 psychology and mindset um i'm a huge advocate for and you know going back to your willpower your previous book on willpower um was so powerful that makes me want this to be my final question about it's about motivation and how to tap into what psychologists this is a topic you touch in the book psychologists call pull motivation by narrowing our possibilities because in a world of infinite possibility it's really hard to get started and to go in any one direction and i'm wondering if you could um as a tip of the hat to the book that you all ought to be reading right now, which is um, personality isn't permanent. Talk to us about pull motivation and narrowing focus on a compelling outcome. For sure. Well, so there's pull motivation and there's push motivation. Push motivation means you have to push to do it, which means it requires a lot of willpower. It means you're not, you don't really want to do it or you don't understand how to do it. It's, it's a push. It's difficult. Whereas pull motivation means that you're literally being pulled forward. Uh, it means that like you've put your, and, and so like that, there's a good theory in, in psychology called expectancy theory. Uh, it's one of the core motivations on, I'm sorry, it's one of the core theories on motivation. And basically what it breaks motivation into is three things. In order to be heavily motivated, you need a clear goal. You need like a, a process to get there, which often requires education. You know, like as, as an example, when I first decided I wanted to be a professional writer, 
I first had to conceptualize a goal. I had a future self. The future self was me as a professional writer, you know, writing books like this, but I needed to turn that into a goal in order for it to become motivation. And so after getting enough, you know, information, asking agents, bloggers, writers, I, I came to the conclusion that I, I wanted to get a six-figure book deal. You know, that was a tangible thing that I could do. So you want to, you need a clear goal and an outcome, like something tangible out in the real world. Um, and then you ultimately need to develop a process. Um, so once I had the question or once I said, okay, I want to get a six-figure book deal. This is before I'd ever written a blog post, didn't even know anything about it. I then had to actually study how the crap do you do that? <laughs> um, you know what I mean? But if you have a goal, you can then reverse engineer a process. And the goal always determines the process. A lot of people are looking for a process, but the process without the context of a goal makes zero sense. My goal is going to be different from your goal, so my process is going to be extremely different from your process. Um, but a lot of people, they obsess on the process. Um, so, but anyways, you, you need a goal, you need a process, and then ultimately you need to start taking steps in that direction, even small steps. And then motivation starts to kick in, just like confidence starts to kick in. So there's a quote. Um, from Harvard, a Harvard psychologist, his name's Jerome Bruner, but he says that you're more likely to act your way into feeling than feeling yourself into action. And so basically the idea is small steps. That's why I think first thing in the morning, putting yourself in the perspective of your future self and maybe even just taking a few small steps forward, over time, it accumulates into an extreme amount of motivation. You know, like when I first started blogging back in 2015, I was a first year PhD student. I had class at eight in the morning. That was actually a forcing function. Because for me, it was like, okay, I have only until eight in the morning. And then after class, I should probably get home because my wife's tearing her hair, hair out because we've got three new foster kids. And so if I need to write, I have to do it before 8 a.m. And so, you know, it only took like an hour or two a day, but, and also educating myself on, on the process of my goal. But over time, your motivation becomes extremely heightened. Uh, it also heightens by making progress, by watching yourself make progress. That's why I think it's so exciting to say, what are my wins from my last 90 days? Just looking at that can motivate you. And so motivation, you can't be motivated without a goal. I, I, I recommend shrinking your goals down, you know, because complexity also kills motivation. So if you can really shrink it to like, what's the one major outcome you're looking for? In my case, it was a six-figure book deal. This, that was back then. If you can break all of your goals into one and say, what's the one thing you're really trying to get? It should still be tangible then you can create a really streamlined path towards that one major outcome. And that will really make motivation very easy for you. If you don't have all the answers, or if you're trying to pursue too many things, it's going to be too complex and you're going to just stop yourself from taking any action, which is going to kill, kill your motivation. <laughs> Wisdom. Again, there's all kinds of clapping and thumbs up and the double hand uh, in the air emoji. Dr. Ben, Thank you so much for being on the show. If you're tuning in late, you, you missed it. Uh, rewind, go back to the beginning, go back to creativelive.com slash TV uh, because we've just been limit uh, liberated from the limiting beliefs that our true selves need to be discovered and have rather been shown that we can intentionally create our desired selves and achieve amazing things individually, culturally as a solo or as a team. Thank you so much for being on the show, Ben. Congrats on your new book dropping today. I wish you all the best. And this community is very passionate and our, our book buyers. So uh, for those folks out there, um, show some support for Dr. Benjamin Hardy and his new book. Ben, congrats, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Dude, I'm blown away. You let me be on it of all days today. Really generous of you. Very generous of you, man.
Very excited, and we will uh, make a quick turn on the audio because I know, again, there's folks. Uh, Radonna says thank you. 333 Harry says giving a shout out. Uh, Bonnie, Donnell, Suvion, uh, Matthew, Torben, Susan, people cheering, cheering you on from all over the world. Best of luck in the launch, and uh, thanks so much for illuminating um, what's possible with this one precious life we've got. Thank you, man. Hey, that was an awesome episode. But before you bounce, just I got three quick thoughts. First, thank you for being in this community. It gives me so much juice. I can't even tell you so much juice that when I hit publish and this show goes out into the ether, that there's an amazing community of like-minded people just like you consuming and sharing the show. So thank you. Second, it would be huge. It would mean the world to me if you left a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Now, we're regularly featured at the top slot there on Apple's podcast page and others and Spotify, etc. And that's because of your reviews. So if you've ever wanted to uh, lend a hand or you got some value from me in the past and you want to pay it forward, that would be amazing. And then lastly, it would also mean the world to me if you shared the content that you get here whether it's a screenshot or a photo of where you're listening, anything via Instagram stories um, or any other social feeds tagging me and the guests. Now, I repost this content and your comments all the time, so I would love to share your shoutouts in my feed too. Um, not only do these shoutouts, uh, are, are they good for you and me, but they also help us book amazing guests because they see the reach that you cultivate. This is a way for you to help contribute to the show. So again, I want to say thanks. I'm just at Chase Jarvis. You can use at Creative Live as well. And the guests are easy to track down because they are, well, they're usually quite well-known people. Um, but again, thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to being in your ears again, hopefully tomorrow.